Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, March 31st, 2023. Today, as we do each week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. The American Library Association has reported on the surge in book bans and legislative attacks on the freedom to read. Such efforts are intensifying. Yeah, that's right. And I think intensifying really is the right word here because we've seen the pressure mounting on teachers and librarians around the country, and that's now being borne out in the statistics. Now, it will come as a surprise to no one who's been paying any attention at all to the news and listening to this podcast that book bans and other legislative efforts are on the rise across the country still. But the numbers released by the American Library Association uh, just this last week were truly shocking. ALA last week reported that it had tracked the stunning 1,269 attempted book bans in 2022, and that's nearly double the record-shattering 729 challenges it recorded in 2021, which was double what the ALA would usually track in any given year, and by far was the highest number in more than two decades that the association has been tracking the figures. And we should note that these are only the attempted bans that were reported to ALA, right? Remember, most attempts at book bans are not reported, so these figures actually represent just a small fraction of what's actually happening in our communities. You know, doubling the number of book bans every year, to put it mildly, is a worrisome trajectory. You know, by comparison, ALA tracked 377 challenges in 2019. That, of course, was the year before the pandemic shuttered libraries and schools. Uh, in 2020, when the pandemic hit, challenges actually dropped, understandably. But, you know, if you look over the last decade of, you know, the statistics at the ALA, they usually come in, these challenges usually come in at around three or 400. And that's, you know, at the same time, there's usually just like slightly more unique titles being challenged. So you'll see three to 400 challenges and maybe five or 600 titles being challenged. And that's because prior to 2020, the vast majority of challenges usually involved parents, like real parents who were actually coming to school to challenge a single work or you know to a library to challenge a single work that they discovered their child reading that they had a concern about. And then those challenges would go through this well-established challenge process where it would be resolved. Now, ALA says the vast majority of challenges it's seeing, uh, more than 90% of their attempts are to censor multiple titles. So the, of the 1,269 challenges tracked this year, they involved almost 2,600 unique titles. And of course, no surprise, the overwhelming majority of these books are challenged because they've been written by or they're about members of the LGBTQ community or people of color. In her comments last week, Deborah Caldwell-Stone, who's the director of the ALA's Office for Intellectual Freedom, uh, called this what it is. She said it's a politically motivated attempt to suppress the voices of those traditionally excluded from our nation's conversations, such as people in the LGBTQIA plus community and people of color. And I'll add, these are the very same voices that a publishing industry that's currently struggling to diversify both its ranks and its books has pledged to amplify. And look, a glance at the recent headlines will show that after more than two years now following this troubling trend, things might actually be poised to get worse. And why do you think this wave of book bans is going to get worse? 
You know, I'll put out, point out a couple of resources here. You know, if our listeners don't know about them, I'd really urge them to bookmark and read Kelly Jensen's weekly censorship reports for Book Riot. You know, they always include a smart take in the opening of her column, and then they offer the best by a mile roundup of news from local community level newspapers that show which books are being pulled in which communities and why. It's a little terrifying, but it really is a must read. And of course, in my weekly week in libraries column, which goes out on Friday afternoons, I also run down a lot of action involving book bans, especially action in legislatures around the country. You know, as for why this is getting worse, you know, for a simple reason, you read those two resources and you can see that this really is, as Caldwell Stone notes for the ALA, it's political in nature. And it really is clear that there's a lot of money behind attacking libraries and schools as, you know, purveyors of filth and pornography, that this really is a wedge issue that people are using to sort of get elected. Uh, John Kraska, who's the executive director at Every Library, which is a, a PAC that works on behalf of libraries across the country, has called this wave of book banning the weaponization of parental control to advance a political agenda. And I think he's right on the mark. And even though most polls, including a recent poll just out last week, show that Americans are still, by and large, against book bans in large numbers, the issue is still proving to be really effective in animating right-wing voters. And in the reddest of red states out there, in, in, in these communities, it really is proving to be a powerful line of attack. And I think it is getting worse by any measure. You know, in the opening weeks of the 2023 legislative year, we've seen some 20 states introduce bills that would remove defense from prosecution exemptions for librarians and educators. These would explicitly place librarians, teachers, and other professionals under the threat of prosecution for making accessible books that some residents find objectionable under a really vaguely articulated standard. And, you know, while the surge in book bans has largely played out at the local level, it's now hit the federal level as well. Uh, last week, the Republican-led House of Representatives passed H.R. 5, and that's the so-called Parental Bill of Rights Act. Uh, Senate Majority uh, Leader Chuck Schumer has vowed to block the bill in the Senate, which he called Orwellian, not the action of blocking it, but the bill itself. And political observers rightly note that the passage of this bill would indeed probably set the stage for more book bans and greater attacks on the freedom to read. And it also suggests that this really could become a wedge issue in the 2024 presidential campaign. Now, while it's getting worse, there is hope. I don't want to be all doom and gloom here. It does appear that publishers are finally recognizing that this is a political attack and requires a political response. And they've stood up some new efforts to fight back. Most notably, there's a group out now called the Freedom to Read Advocates. It has launched with the aim of supporting candidates at all levels of government who and this, according to the group's website, would defend access to literature and the ability of individuals and families to decide for themselves what they should read. In other words, you know, as a parent, I'll decide what my child reads. You know, other parents should stay out of my business and, and let me do my thing. And, and an example of the best defense being a good offense, lawmakers in Illinois are now advancing a law that aims to ban book banning. It's led by the Democratic Secretary of State there who oversees the state library, and the proposed measure would require libraries in the state to adopt the American Library Association's Library Bill of Rights or a similar policy that would prohibit book banning as a condition of getting state funding. So things are happening in defense of the freedom to read, uh, but the numbers and the headlines show we have a lot of ground to make up.
Last Friday, Andrew, you told me you expected a swift decision in a lawsuit filed by four publishers and the Association of American Publishers accusing the Internet Archive of copyright infringement over its program to scan and lend library books. And sure enough, on Friday evening, the court did rule, delivering a big win for the publishers. Yes, indeed. It's a really emphatic win for sure. In a 47-page opinion, uh, federal judge John G. Kodal found that the Internet Archive infringed the copyrights of four plaintiff publishers. That's Hachette, Harper, Collins, uh, Penguin Random House, and Wiley. They were contesting a practice known as controlled digital lending. And honestly, after three years of this case sort of working its way through the system, it wasn't even really close. Uh, and, a, and a fairly devastating decision, Kodal noted that there was no case or legal principle that supported the Internet Archive's scanning and lending program. In fact, Kodal concluded every authority points in the other direction. Uh, and as you say, the ruling came just days after a March 20 hearing at which the judge sounded very skeptical of the Internet Archive's case. Of course, the, you know, we'll just back up for a second, remind our, our listeners that this copyright infringement lawsuit was first filed in 2020, on June 1, 2020, uh, by these four publishers and organized by the Association of American Publishers. And while the suit specifically involves 127 works from the plaintiff publishers, that's just a sample of some 33,000 plaintiff publisher works said to be included in the Internet Archive's online library. And the court filing suggests that there's actually as many as 3.6 million works potentially still under copyright. The parties are now tasked with uh, coming back with a proposed procedure for the court to work on a judgment and a potential remedy in the case. That's due next Friday. Uh, I assume that's going to be a very tough task for the parties to come together on. I expect there's going to be considerable disagreement there. Uh, the publishers will, are no doubt going to be seeking an injunction, uh, as well as millions in damages and legal fees. And in their initial complaint, they suggested they wanted the infringing scans destroyed. Internet Archive officials have vowed to appeal the case. So even though we had a really swift ruling after the oral argument, I expect this litigation is actually going to be hanging around for a while. In the court's fair use analysis, the judge found all four of the four factors in that analysis tilted strongly in the publisher's favor. Pretty simply, too. It was fairly quickly the way the court did it. Um, and you know, I can run them down here without getting in the weeds too much um, because the court's decision was so you know, simple and pretty emphatic. Um, so obviously, the, we have the four factors of you know, the fair use test here. Factor one and factor four are usually the most important in cases like these. And in terms of factor one, the most notable point that Kodal rejected is what is essentially the most important argument for fair use under the first factor. And that's that Kodal found that the Internet Archive scanning was not transformative. And he did so fairly bluntly. Basically, he just said there is nothing transformative about the IA's copying and unauthorized lending of the works in suit. That's a direct quote, actually. Uh, apparently, using technology to expand access to print books is not transformative simply because the scans can be used for the same purpose as the original, of course, which is to read, read the entire book. And furthermore, something I think that the publishers really wanted from this case, Kodal, under the first factor, went on to dispatch with what he called the Internet Archive's first sale argument under the guise of fair use. Citing the Redigi case, which we've talked about on the show years ago, uh, Judge Kodal shot down the legal foundation of CDL because, as was the case in Redigi, the practice of controlled digital lending of CDL requires the use of an unauthorized copy. Now, 
a little background on Redigi. Uh, that was a service that was launched in 2011 that proposed to remove iTunes tracks from a user's computer so they could be offered for resale. And while the courts acknowledged that the service did actually manage to mimic an analog resale uh, and that it was designed in good faith to, and I'll quote them here, achieve a goal generally favored by the law of copyright, it was nonetheless infringing because it necessarily required the creation or this unauthorized copy to do its work. And that finding, Codal Stress, also applied to controlled digital lending. Remember, a core tenant of controlled digital lending is this idea that the library would not increase the number of copies in circulation. Nevertheless, because CDL involves making this copy, it's a no-go, the court held. And that's important because the publishers have long been worried about a digital resale market for ebooks. And they got a lot of relief from the Redigi case. And I think that this ruling in this case pretty much buttons up that issue for the publishers. Now, on to the fourth factor, the other really important factor here, Kotal noted that there is this, well, thriving licensed ebook market. And he dismissed expert testimony suggesting that the publisher's bottom lines are actually unharmed by the Internet Archives online library. He held basically as a matter of law that the existence of these scans potentially deprive the publishers of revenues to which they are entitled as copyright holders because libraries could be incentivized to offer these, I'll quote them here, bootleg ebooks rather than to pay for authorized ebook licenses. And I think really crucially under the fourth factor here, Judge Kotal really just brushed aside the Internet Archive's public benefit argument. He did so in a single paragraph, holding that the alleged benefits of increased library access just can't outweigh the potential market harm to publishers. And there was one final holding under the fourth factor that's really sort of, you know, drawing some scrutiny now. And that's that Judge Kotal ruled that even though the Internet Archive is a nonprofit and that it doesn't make a profit from scanning and lending these books, the uses are, in fact, still commercial. And that's because the Internet Archive, under Kotal's reading, benefits in other ways. For example, by getting more people to click on the Internet Archive website, where they might then donate or click on a link to buy a book from an affiliate partner. Uh, but even if that holding is nullified on appeal, and I know a lot of legal scholars are questioning that, look, there's still plenty under the fourth factor here that would tip the case to the publishers uh, as the ruling now stands. And what reactions have come to the ruling, Andrew? And any thoughts on what comes next? You know, so in a sliver, I think, of good news for the Internet Archive, Judge Kotal held that their petition to have their statutory damages waived should you know, should they lose the case, which obviously now they, they stand to lose, uh, th- th- that petition is relevant. And they said its lawyers could renew that argument in connection with any final judgment in the case. Now, the Copyright Act does offer some relief where the infringer is a nonprofit educational institution, library, or archive, uh, and where the infringers believed or had reasonable grounds for believing that its uh, use of the works in question was a fair use. So we'll see if the Internet Archive can find a way to reduce its damages award under, under that pleading. Uh, and Kotal also acknowledged that the Internet Archive is still free to lend the books in its collection that are in the public domain uh, and free to use the works that are still covered by copyright in a manner that it's consistent with uses deemed to be fair in other lawsuits, Google Books, he cites, and the Hottie Trust. And that would include things like indexing and snippet view and, you know, most likely full access for the print disabled. And also, I think that line suggests that the publishers are probably not going to prevail should they decide to ask for the infringing scans to be destroyed because the court has basically acknowledged that there's legal uses for them. I don't know that the publishers are going to ask for that. I think that's a terrible look for the publishing industry, but we will soon, we will soon see. 
But with a permanent injunction clearly now in the offing, I think it's fair to say, and observers have pointed out, that the ruling stands as an unequivocal blow to the practice of controlled digital lending, which Internet Archive officials appeared to acknowledge in a statement on Friday afternoon. But then again, there is also the appeal process. And what I'm hearing from, from lawyers and from reading online is that you know that is where the action is really going to take place. And that seems right to me. It seems like the Second Circuit Court of Appeals is where we're really going to get a deeper reading of all the facts and the law in this case. Internet Archive officials have vowed to pursue this appeal. Internet Archive founder Brewster Cowell said the ruling is a blow for libraries, authors, and readers. And he said that, you know, it basically reduces libraries to customer service departments for the larger publishers. So he sounds pretty fired up about it, and and I understand why. Uh, The publishers are, of course, delighted with the decision, and they actually spiked the ball pretty hard in their comments. Um, Maria Palante, who, of course, is the president and CEO of the AAP, said that, you know, she hopes the opinion will prove educational to the defendant and anyone else who finds public laws inconvenient to their own interests. So it stands now as a big win in court for the publishers. But I'll just make one final note or two on how this is all playing out in the court of public opinion. Now, if you scan the headlines and look at the coverage online, you can see that a lot of outlets are emphasizing how this decision is a, quote, loss for libraries, many more than who are calling this a win for authors and publishers. And I think that's because I believe the public understands that whatever the court says about the, the legal contours of copyright, which can be complicated for people to understand, and and whatever it says about fair use, which can be ill-fitting, especially today in the digital environment, that people understand that libraries, scanning print books, and then seeking to lend them in a controlled fashion actually seems to be a positive thing and not really that much of a threat to publishers. You know, in 2023, with all the digital content out there, no one is reading these, pardon me, Brewster, but no one's reading these crappy scans as <laughs> substitutes for real ebooks or for print books. At the same time, it's kind of nice to know from a cultural point of view that they're there, that somebody is actually preserving and making available this cultural record. I think people understand that this collection really could be a resource that benefits them. So I would just say with this win comes a note of caution for the publishers. Yes, you have won your case for now. Uh, We'll see what the appeals court holds. But you really haven't solved the underlying issue with libraries here. And that's really what we need to happen. Andrew Albanese, Publishers Weekly Senior Writer, thanks for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. 